Grace team, and thank you so much for being here today. If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to 2 Kings, 2 Kings. We were in 1 Kings last week, so it's not too far away from our passage last Sunday, but 2 Kings is our text, and we'll read from chapter 4 in just a minute. I brought with me a bottle of olive oil today, and actually as I was coming in, one of our greeters thought I was bringing a bottle of alcohol with me. She thought it had been a rough week for me, that I possibly was needing a little pick-me-up this morning. I promise you that is not the case. This is olive oil. But how many of you have olive oil in your home? You cook with it. You use it with uh, maybe uh, making some chicken or making something in the a skillet, maybe even mixing some vegetables with it. Olive oil is actually quite popular and is in many, many homes. I've learned this week that many of you have olive oil stories. I asked on Facebook and last week in the service if you had an olive oil story or a use to share it with me, and I received all kinds of things this week. I received from Miss Ruby Ingram a wonderful recipe for baked salmon in olive oil and lemon. Sounds very tasty. Sounds like she's quite the chef. I also received kind of a a use of olive oil. If you have a sticker or a price tag that needs to kind of be rubbed off and it's got that sticky leftover, olive oil will help get that out. But probably one of the best stories I received came from Rebecca Alexander where she shared that olive oil helps babies' hair grow. At least that's what is supposed to happen. She told the story of her family, four daughters in the family. The first daughter had olive oil as an infant rubbed on her head to give her thick, lustrous hair, and it worked. Well, the second daughter, they decided not to do it. It must be silly old wives' tale to rub olive oil on a baby's head. And sure enough, the daughter's hair is a little thinner. So the daughter three and four, they actually continue to do the olive oil. And all four or all three of those daughters have very, very thick hair if they had olive oil rubbed on their head as infants. So here's the question. How many of you think that's a good idea? (laughs) That's what I thought. Not a lot. I don't know. It's maybe a mystery. Is olive oil actually connected to thick hair? I wonder if as men lose their hair, if we could rub our heads with olive oil, maybe make it regrow. I don't know. We'll have to see. Olive oil is by far one of the the most known products around the world. Spain is the world's largest exporter of olive oil. Italy is next, then Greece and Turkey. And if you think the Mediterranean Sea, perfect temperature, perfect climate for growing olives. I found out the most expensive bottle of olive oil comes from Spain. And for 12 bottles, each just 20 ounces in contents, cost you $1,400. Yikes, you know, that's more than Whole Foods will charge you olive oil, and that's an expensive place to shop. So olive oil is truly something that brings many, many people their livelihoods. Uh, There's an expression in those cultures, an expression that I want to use today that frames our text. It's that olive oil or oil is life. Oil is life. 
life. For many of those cultures, particularly around the Mediterranean Sea, oil is life. Olive oil is life. If you have olive oil in your cupboard, in your pantry, you are sustaining life. It's the way that people provide for themselves. It's the way that people provide for their families. Oil is life. If you have nothing else but you have oil, you can still survive. You can still provide for your children. You can still walk strong. It's an interesting expression that comes from that world. And I wonder today, did maybe that expression derive from 2 Kings chapter 4? If you have your Bibles open, I want us to read just a few verses that tell of the story of Elisha and the woman with a little bit of oil. Uh, To set the stage so that you're familiar, last week we studied Elijah, right? You remember Elijah? He was the prophet of God who defeated the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and ultimately ran from Jezebel. Elijah, after that incident, kind of has a resurgence in his ministry and is strong and mighty in the Lord for a good long time. At some point, he brings in a protege, a next tier leader, someone that's going to follow after him, and his name is Elisha. Sometimes we get them confused in the Bible because their names are so similar, Elijah and Elisha, but they're two different guys. But they served with one another for a time period. And then we read at the end of 1 Kings, Elijah begins to end his ministry. And as we turn into 2 Kings, we actually read this amazing story that Elijah is taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. And Elisha, his protege, is now the prophet of God. He's the representation of God. He's the mouthpiece of God to the people And Elisha, in the opening chapters of 2 Kings, has several miracles that he performs that gives evidence to his authority and to God's hand on his life. And this is the first one. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 1 through 7. And as I read it, I want you to remember the phrase, oil is life. The Bible says, One of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, has died. You know that your servant feared the Lord. Now the creditor is coming to take my two children as his slaves. Elisha asked her, What can I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, go out and borrow empty containers from all your neighbors. Do not get just a few. Then go in and shut the door behind you and your sons and pour into all these containers and set the full ones to the side. So she left. After she shut the door behind her and her sons, they kept bringing her containers and she kept pouring. And when they were full, she said to her sons, bring me another container. But he replied, there aren't any more. Then the oil stopped. 
And she went and she told the man of God and he said to her, go sell the oil and pay your debt and you and your sons can live on the rest. If you have those sermon notes, I'd invite you to pull them out. I want to use three pictures to ask three questions. Three pictures to ask three questions. The first picture is the picture of a single jar. And it comes from verse 1 and 2. And it's representing a family in trouble. A family in trouble. That one jar represents a family who is at the end of the rope. If oil is life, this family is in serious trouble. Think with me how that might play out. Verse 1 and 2 tells us that the widow is in debt. Her husband has died. The prophet, one of the prophets, One of the servants of God has died and that was their livelihood. That was the way they provided for their children. And now she has debts that can't be paid. And she tells Elisha that in order for her to pay her debts, the creditors are going to come and they're going to take her two sons. Now imagine this. We have many moms here. Can you imagine losing your husband? Losing all of your ability to provide? And now the creditors are banging at your door wanting, say, the mortgage, the payment for the land, the payment for the car, the remainder of your savings, and you have nothing left to give. And in order for that debt to be paid, they now have commanded, they have demanded that the bill will be cleared by the slavery of your children taking them out of the home, putting them in chains, and then working them so that your debt could be cleared. This sounds brutal, barbaric, cruel. But aside from this story, I want you to know that still happens today. In places around the world, this kind of thing still occurs. We haven't eradicated child slavery and human trafficking in 2019. Some in the world, humane societies, the people who watch this in civil rights, they have said there is more child slavery and human trafficking today than there was at any other time in human history. This is an example of a mother who is still grieving the loss of a husband who is now facing the worst of the worst. And Elisha asks her, what do you have? What's left in the house? And her answer is simply, I got one jar of oil. Can you imagine going into your cupboards and opening one after another and the only food stuff, the only store left in any of the cabinets is a little jar of oil? That's it. This woman is in trouble. And this woman is afraid. And that leads me to my first question for you. Are you nearly out of oil? Are you down to the nitty-gritty? To the bare minimums? 
If oil is life, would you be looking at the last little oil left in your jar? Now, I want to be frank with you and be honest. If we were really transparent with one another, even if we didn't want to admit it, there are some in our faith family, some in our congregation that would be like this woman on the brink of disaster. Maybe it's one paycheck away. Maybe it's one week away. Maybe it's one mortgage payment away. But they're on the very edge of complete financial disaster. There are others who are in other kinds of potential disaster areas. Some physically, some emotionally, some in their health, some in their relationships. They're just on the very edge. And my question for you today, are you on the edge? Are you about out of oil? Most of us in our American context, the last thing we want to do is admit that we're in trouble. Admit that we're on the edge. But she wasn't afraid. She tells him blankly, flatly, all I have left is oil. She has called out. And the second scene I want you to see here, brothers and sisters, the second scene I want you to note there is she steps out in faith and she does exactly what God's representative instructs her to do. He tells her in verse 3, go out and borrow empty jars from all your neighbors. Now, watch this with me, friends. Don't miss this. And he tells her, don't just get one or two. He tells her to get as many as she can find. What does she have to do? She has to walk up and down the village, up and down the streets, going into every home, into every neighbor, and asking for help. Can you imagine her... Her emotions when she hears that she has to tell everybody, not just the people right around her, but everybody in the village her problem. She's got to tell every one of the people in that town that she's broke, that she's destitute, that she's got debts. Can you imagine what emotionally, she's already been through the loss of a husband, now she's about to lose her children, lose her livelihood, lose everything she loves, and what she's going to be required to do by the man of God is to go and tell her story to as many people as possible? This has got to be embarrassing. This has got to be humiliating. It's the exact opposite of what we would normally do, what our normal Pattern would be is to hide this, to keep this secret, to keep this quiet, to let no one know we're struggling, to let no one know we're hurting, to tell nobody how bad it really is. It's to shut the doors, close the windows, keep all the secrets on the inside, and never let it out. Isn't that us? Isn't that how we do things? And the prophet of God instructs her to go up and down the streets and ask for help. My second question for you today. Do you need to ask somebody for some help? Do you need to ask some others for help? If oil is life and you're nearly out of oil, are you willing to ask for help? Are you willing to recognize something is needed? Are you willing to move past the embarrassment, move past the pride and tell others, not just your closest circle, but truly anybody who will listen, I need help. I'm running out of time. I'm down to the bare minimum. I need help. 
This woman didn't let her poverty or her pride keep her in isolation. She asked for help. Friends, I'm just going to cut to the chase. And some of us in this very room need to ask others for help today. There are some married couples that need to ask for help. They need to seek out a marriage counselor and they need to ask for help. There are some families that need to ask for help with their finances. They've mismanaged They've overextended. They got themselves upside down. And they need to ask for some help. There are some folks here that need to speak to a trained grief counselor because you've lost someone and you've never ever healed. You need to ask for some help. A few years ago, Jennifer and I were asked by a couple to come into their home Come to find out the husband had numerous bank accounts under numerous addresses under various names so that he could run up credit cards to the tunes of thousands of dollars that the wife never knew about. She discovers a bill in the glove box of his pickup truck one day and wonders, who on earth does this belong to? It's not ours. It's not he or I. They needed to ask for some help. And over the period of time, we had to walk into their home week in and week out and sort out papers and lies and all sorts of deception. And it was more than just the money, friends. It was the complete destruction of trust. They needed to ask for some help. I know that I've had at times had to ask for brothers in the faith to walk with me in accountability so that what I laid my eyes on and my my mind on was pure and upright before the Lord. You got to ask for help. I know that there are others who have to ask for help on overcoming addiction, overcoming obesity, overcoming the problems with thoughts that are absolutely toxic. We need to ask for help. Maybe we need to ask a trusted friend to be our person of accountability. Maybe we need to ask a friend to walk into our house with us and help us remove all the clutter, all the hoarding that we've done in order to simplify our lives and live a more simple, godly lifestyle. Maybe we got to invite somebody into our space and expose a little bit of our shame. In our pride, brothers and sisters, we neglect that God may be using someone else to help us, to move us forward, to help us walk in a new way. This woman asked for help. The humility it takes in asking for help is always the first step toward healing. And so she walked up and down those village streets and she said, if you got a jar, I need it. But let me give you one last picture and this is where those sermon notes will come into play. If you got a pencil or a pen, I'm gonna have you do something for me. Kind of an art project in the middle of the sermon. 
People ask me, why on earth are there no words on here? Well, images detect words. What I want you to do in that third picture is begin filling in those jars, the different size jars as I read this from verse 5 through 7. So she left and the scripture says after she shut the door behind her and her sons, they kept bringing her containers and she kept pouring. Imagine that one single jar, that one remaining jar starts pouring and it fills the first, fill the first jar. Fill it in as a full, complete jar. And then it pours again to the next and again to the next and again to the next such that every jar she came up with, she's taking her one jar that was the remaining in her home and she's pouring it out each into every jar. Verse 6, and when they were full, she said, bring me another. And he said, but there aren't any more. She gets the whole, whole lot of them filled with oil from that one jar. And then what happens? The scripture says, then the oil stopped. I don't know. I, I got this, this picture in my mind maybe of a magic trick. Uh, have you ever seen one of those magic tricks where they were taking like a milk jug and pouring it into a newspaper? And it just can, where's the milk go? Where does the liquid go? It doesn't get the paper wet. You don't see it shooting out the, the bottom of the magician's sleeve or out his pant leg. But somehow that one jar fills numerous jars. And the Bible doesn't tell us how many it fills. It doesn't tell us how many liters came from one to the other. It's not a math equation. Simply, it's a testimony that from that one jar, through God's provision, multiple jars are filled. Every single one that they could come up with. And friends, let me tell you this. When you really lean into the Lord and you really trust him at his word and you really get honest before God and you let some other people feel into your life, what will come out from that one remaining jar is the ability to see God's provision for a lifetime. God can do something by your vulnerability, by your sensitivity to him and your obedience to his word that will really begin to multiply to expand. That amount of oil was enough to pay for the debt and to cause her family to have a livelihood for the rest of her son's life. That's what God does when we really allow ourselves to become honest and to seek help and to be willing to pour out what little we have into his hands in order to be multiplied. If oil is life, friends, let me ask you, are you running low? If oil is life, are you willing to ask for help? If oil is life, have you really poured it out before the Lord, letting him multiply it in his ways? And there's power in the oil. And I ask you today, have you received that power from God? Let's pray together. Father, I just ask if there be a man, a woman, a family here that's just on the edge, that maybe today they would recognize their need and seek out help. They would come from the darkness into the light, from shame into hope 
I pray, God, that you would use our faith family as a place where it's not embarrassing to say, I'm in need. It's not out of line to say, I am broken. But this would be a place that invites truth, honesty, so that we can love each other, help each other, serve one another, lift each other up. But Father, if there is someone here today that's really in need of your hand, I pray that today they would admit it, they would recognize it, and they would ask you for help and ask others for help. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.